Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Rhett and Link, comedians who founded the daily YouTube show Good Mythical Morning, with more than 16 million subscribers, as of December 2020, are the fourth highest YouTube earners, making $20 million a year. So it shouldn't surprise us that more than a few Christians were shocked when they announced their deconversion, their transition from having once been Campus Crusade staffers to being unbelievers, and at least in Rhett's case, to being an atheist. While deconstruction stories are nothing new in our secular age, their increasing frequency is alarming to many Christians, especially parents. The fact is that those once committed to following Jesus are deconverting in record numbers and at a record rate. Not only are those with no religious affiliation, which by the way are called the nuns, dramatically increasing in number among young adults, but a 215 Pew Research study found that, quote, roughly 8 in 10 religious nuns say they were raised with a religious affiliation, which means that nearly 80% of nuns surveyed were at one time in a faith community before jettisoning it. Alarmed church leaders, parents, and grandparents are asking why. This episode reveals valuable insights about why so many young adults, when they leave the influence of their Christian home and church, abandon the Christian faith and what we might do to prevent it. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 38 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Today we begin a new podcast series, Protecting Our Families from Enticing but False Worldviews. God designed men to be the protectors of their homes. Genesis 2.15 reveals to us this God-designed role. We read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Keep it is the Hebrew word shamar, which means to protect the garden and those in it. In the New Testament, Paul builds on this idea, calling the men of the church at Corinth to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. As men protect their own faith and the faith of their loved ones, we must be watchful, Paul says. We must not be blind to the destructive ideas that come into our homes and into the lives of our loved ones. We must not be naive about the false worldviews that are taking captive our children, grandchildren, those under our shepherding care, and at times even our wives. Paul describes spiritual warfare in terms of ideas. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We must protect our loved ones from false ideas. But Genesis 2.25 also assigns to husbands and fathers the responsibility to help our loved ones flourish. This assigned responsibility is revealed in that same verse. It's the first of the tasks mentioned. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. Work it is the Hebrew word avad, meaning to cause the garden and those in it to flourish. 
to thrive. One of the principal ways that Christians grow stronger and more mature, which is what our goal is, is revealed by Paul in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is doubtful that any population of Christians in the West in recent history has faced more severe pressure to conform to social norms than today's Christians. One recent study showed that teen girls spend over 10 hours per day on their cell phones. That means the exposure she gets to the worldviews of the social media is 70 times greater than the exposure she gets to the biblical worldview through an hour in church, or 35 times the exposure she gets to biblical ideas if she goes to the youth group and to church. Here's another statistic. The Great Dad Seminar cites numerous studies that reveal that fathers spend less than two minutes per day in meaningful conversations with their children. And that is not time talking about biblical worldview necessarily. It is time talking with them about any subject at all. So who is catechizing our children? It is the social media. In response, this podcast over the next eight weeks will address eight enticing worldviews that are powerfully shaping the rising generation, often causing them, when they leave home and are more fully exposed to the Internet, to deconvert entirely from Christianity or deconvert from biblical teaching that they think is outdated, becoming what has been called progressive Christians. Let me provide an important caveat before we go any further about the term deconversion. I believe the Bible teaches eternal security, that you can't lose your salvation. But it also teaches that at times the seed of the gospel hits the rocky subsoil of rock formations, like the soil in Palestine. The seed springs up quickly, but it doesn't go down deep enough to reach the roots of the heart to bring true repentance and faith. Deconversions don't mean that we give up and say, well, God will save whom he will save and they will persevere. Instead of being passive, we need to engage the soil of our loved one's hearts, plowing it up and crushing the rock formation as best God enables us to. We want to overcome the obstacles, the rock that prevents the seed from taking root. Our process in the podcast will not be to just harshly refute these eight views with the cold knife of logic, as if those who promote them are our enemies. It will not be to merely engage the mind, but also seek to engage the heart. Proverbs 16.21 says, Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And Proverbs 16.23, two verses later, guides us, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. We want to guide our loved ones to understand why these views are so attractive to those who hold them, and then steer our loved ones to see for themselves the inconsistencies of secular worldviews, how much more sense the biblical view makes, and how much better it corresponds to reality. Having studied these deconstruction stories for several years, I've become convinced that how 
we combat the world's false ideas has an enormous impact on our persuasiveness with the rising generation. In other words, if we communicate hostility toward those who hold sub-biblical views, those who promote them or towards the views themselves, we are likely to fail to win the hearts of our listeners. I mean, it's not as if those who deconvert from the faith in Christ or biblical teaching have never heard these mistaken secular views refuted by Christians, yet a combination of factors led them ultimately to reject those arguments and truths. So let's begin this series by asking, what can we learn about what might have contributed to deconversion stories? Most of the common struggles and doubts that cause those raised in Bible-believing homes and churches to renounce their faith fall into one of two categories. Questioning the veracity of Christian teaching, is Christianity true? Or questioning the moral benefit of Christianity, does Christianity promote justice and love? Let's look first at three conditions that contribute to the rising generation's questioning of whether or not Christianity is true. The first condition is a naive faith. Overprotecting our kids by prohibiting them from hearing the objections to believing the Bible or the biblical worldview sets them up to later abandon their confidence in Scripture when they leave our protective cocoon and face the real world. Olympic triple jump gold medalist Jonathan Edwards, not the Jonathan Edwards who's an American theologian, after years of being known as a humble, committed Christian, shocked Great Britain by coming out as an atheist. He said, When you think about it rationally, it does seem incredibly improbable that there is a God. He explained that while filming a documentary on the life of the Apostle Paul, he was intrigued by the suggestion from liberal scholars that the Damascus Road experience was better explained as an epileptic seizure than an authentic experience of hearing Jesus' voice. Looking back, he explained that he was so busy training for the Olympics that he just took for granted that the Bible was true. In his words, I was quite happy in a world populated by my family and close friends, people who shared my belief system. Leaving that world to get involved with television and other projects gave me the freedom to question everything. Researcher John Marriott observes, Edwards was so focused on training and competition that he had no time to think deeply about anything else. And although he may have had a vibrant faith, it was a naive faith. Before our children leave our homes, they must be equipped to know what worldviews they will encounter and how these worldviews misunderstand reality. That is the reason for this podcast series. The following are some of the worldview assumptions they are hearing, which we'll be examining. There are too many errors in the Bible for it to be infallible. To say there is just one way to God is inherently intolerant. Christianity's sexual mores reflect its very dated, if not puritanical, understanding of sex. Christianity's views of the LGBTQ life expose Christianity's intolerance toward outsiders. Social justice demands equality of medical benefits and wealth. 
It's imperative that our kids hear the other side of the worldview arguments propagated by so many in the social media. Proverbs 18.17 warns parents, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. A second condition that may cause deconversion from faith in the Bible is thinking that faith conflicts with reason. This is, of course, utter nonsense. The Christian church doesn't believe what it does in spite of reason, but because of reason. Peter commands Christians always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Both the Greek word for defense, apologia, from which we get the word apologetics, and the word used here for reason, logos, contain the Greek term logos, from which we get the term logic. Christians do not crucify their brains to become Christ followers. It is true that no one can prove scientifically that God exists. As we will see next week, science, by definition, deals only with empirical evidence from the physical world. It cannot evaluate the existence or non-existence of a being outside the physical world. But science is not the same as logic. The fact is that it is much more logical to believe in the existence of God than not to. It is much more logical to believe in the resurrection based on the evidence than not to. It is much more logical to recognize through archaeology and fulfilled prophecy that the Bible is inspired by God than not to. Since science cannot, by definition, prove anything about the supernatural, neither the existence of God nor the non-existence of God, some Christians mistakenly think that Christianity is not, therefore, logically plausible. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul's argument is that the empirical evidence resulting from observing the created world proves that there must be an orderer outside the universe. Romans 1.20 If the rising generation leaves home believing that the Christian community is a bunch of anti-intellectuals who take a blind leap of faith into irrationality, instead of those who base their faith upon the most logical and plausible way to understand the world, their doubts about the faith will likely explode when they are fully exposed to academia. English professor Karen Pryor recounts a conversation she had with a friend who renounced his faith. I asked him once how the deconstruction had happened. He said that encountering ideas he'd never been exposed to before led him to reconsider everything he had been taught, particularly some claims by Christians in his area of study that he now considered fabrications. She summarized her perspective on deconstruction in these words. People abandon their faith for various reasons, of course, but in my particular context, teaching Christian young people in Christian institutions, the stumbling block I encounter most often is anti-intellectualism. Thinking that Christian faith contradicts reason is to misunderstand the meaning of the word faith. A third contributing factor to deconversion may be forgetting that Christianity is not an inherited religion, but a chosen one. As much as Christian parents, grandparents, and leaders long for their children to embrace their Christian faith, the child's need to wrestle with his own doubts cannot be bypassed. 
His faith needs to be His faith. We must therefore go out of our way to welcome those under our care to be honest about their doubts. We must underscore repeatedly that our relationship is a safe place for his or her doubts. We must be secure enough to urge our children to compare the evidence for Christian beliefs to the arguments against such beliefs. I remember Sean McDowell, the son of renowned apologist Josh McDowell, saying that his father was not worried at all when Sean went through his phase of disbelieving everything he had learned about Christianity. Josh's attitude was, the evidence is on our side. And sure enough, Sean came to embrace biblical Christianity in spades. A close friend of mine who is one of the strongest advocates for biblical truth that I have ever known gave me a clue this past week to why his faith is so strong. He said, when I was a college student at the University of Maryland, I studied under Dave Coffin at the Berean Study Center. He encouraged us to read the arguments on the other side of an issue. And he said, you will find the arguments far weaker than you supposed they would be. My friend picked up a book written by atheist Richard Dawkins, who would later write the book The God Delusion. And that is exactly what my friend discovered. The arguments were far weaker than he ever thought they would be. Christianity is not an inherited religion. It is a chosen one, and we need to give the rising generation the space to own their own beliefs. We want to guide them, not throw them to the wolves, but it has to be their own. So the first three contributors to deconversion have to do with doubting the truth of Christianity. The fourth has to do with doubting the goodness of Christianity. The conclusion that Christianity is hardly the beacon of social justice it should be is a common theme in many deconstruction stories. How can a particular religion be true when its adherents supported the slave trade, Jim Crow laws, segregation, and apartheid? The failures of the church are many, as are the character flaws of Christians. Those flaws are magnified in the social media world that is shaping the rising generation's attitudes. One scholar observes, If I were raised deep in the Amazon jungles and then suddenly dropped in the middle of Los Angeles and handed a smartphone and a Twitter account, I'd draw some clear conclusions about Christianity. Namely, Christians are bigots, phobics, and haters. Christians have declared war on women. They are fond of white supremacy they don't care for the poor, they hate Muslims and gay people, are the greatest oppressors on earth, and have been for centuries. This is a common caricature of Christianity. This fourth cause of deconversion is sobering. We must own our failures as a church. We must stop demonizing those whose views we oppose, even though we are being demonized by them. One writer describes some common themes in his friends' decisions to recant their Christian faith. He writes, First, they experienced the reverse culture shock of leaving the evangelical bubble. Having lived their whole lives inside it, they had heard of the outside world through caricatures. Deconverters say things like, I grew up being told gays were awful people, but my next-door neighbors are the nicest guys I've ever met. Or, Surprise, surprise, my non-Christian friends lead fulfilling lives without religion. Or, 
Honestly, my so-called lost friends are more accepting and less critical of others than my church friends ever were. Or, now that I've gotten to know so many non-churchgoers, I've discovered that they are far less hostile toward gays and trans people than Christians who are told they're supposed to love their neighbors as themselves. Hostility towards those with whom we disagree is a characteristic of Bible-believing Christians that drives many who grew up in their homes and churches to later reject their Christian faith. How can the followers of a man who died praying for God to forgive those who unjustly put him to death be hostile toward their political or ideological enemies? This hostile, combative, arrogant attitude toward those who disagree with the biblical worldview may be the biggest obstacle to winning the hearts of the rising generation to embrace the biblical worldview. This stark reality underscores the importance of developing the skill of using questions as we seek to help our loved ones see the flaws of unbiblical worldviews and embrace for themselves a biblical worldview that is the path of truth and blessing for their lives and their world. So how can we, in our discussions, increase the chances of buy-in to the biblical worldview? As a father, grandfather, or work associate, whether you intentionally bring up a particular issue or it comes up naturally, how do you have a productive conversation but yet not come across as pushy or dramatic? When you're discussing a hard topic, it can be difficult to navigate the conversation without shutting down the person you're talking to or being shut down yourself. That's why it's important to go into the conversation with the right motive and a game plan. Greg Kukul, author of the book Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions, recommends two tactics. Number one, think like you're planting a garden, not harvesting a crop. Before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of gardening. Think of Jesus' words at the end of John 4. He says to the disciples, you are about to reap where you did not sow. You have a sowing and a reaping season, a gardening and a harvesting season. So in most conversations, focus on the gardening, planting seeds, not on the harvesting. Tactic number two, use questions to make headway, to plant seeds. Questions are your main gardening tools. Why questions? Here are three reasons that questions are so powerful. Number one, they're polite. You're showing an interest in the other person. You're drawing that person out. You're understanding what they think as they talk. Asking questions is showing good manners. Number two, questions help you gather information. There is much you don't know about this other person, especially about the details of their views. Questions obtain information that will help you know how to move forward. Number three, questions force other people to think about exactly what they do believe. This is strategic. For example, it is easier to point to flaws in Christianity than to forge a consistent alternative explanation of the world. Lots of times, people haven't thought through the slogans they use to oppose you. When you ask questions, it requires them to think more deeply about it, and they understand more clearly what their ideas entail. Here is an example from Greg Kukul about a topic that is increasingly being discussed, the right to health care for women and abortion. A person says to me, abortion is health care. 
I say to him, may I ask you a question? What do you think healthcare is? He says, well, it's making someone healthier, obviously. Good, I say. Do you think pregnancy is an illness? He answers, of course not. So I say, abortion can't be healthcare for the mother because she's not sick. Well, what about the fetus? What does abortion do to the fetus? Well, it kills it. Right. Then how is abortion health care for the fetus? This conversation reflects the politeness of asking questions, the preparedness of having thought through the issue, the strategy of causing the friend to himself think through the issue, and the convicting power of leaving him to answer a convicting question. The power of questions. To summarize this episode, we observed that despite the calling of Christian fathers to protect their families from destructive ideas and the calling to help our families flourish by resisting peer pressure, the statistics prove that our children are being catechized into the values of the social media with very little resistance. As our podcast seeks to help men be equipped to win the hearts of their loved ones to embrace and build healthy lives upon the biblical worldview, we began by trying to learn what we can from those who grew up in Bible-believing churches and homes, but later deconverted from Christianity or from the parts of Christianity that they think are distasteful. We noted four contributing factors towards such deconversion. First, a naive faith. Whether resulting from being overprotected or from simple neglect, the rising generation is not equipped to handle the academic and intellectual challenges to their faith that they will encounter in academia and online. Second, mistakenly thinking that faith conflicts with reason, that biblical Christianity is based upon a blind leap of faith instead of upon a reasoned, logical evaluation of the evidence for believing Christianity and the Bible. Third, forgetting that Christianity is not an inherited religion, but a chosen one. We must not fear the doubts of our children, but welcome them, assuring our kids that their doubts are safe with us and that they have to work through them with our help in order to own their own belief. Fourth, doubting the goodness of Christianity because of the failures of the church and character flaws of Christians, especially their hostility toward those who hold opposing worldviews. Those four reasons converge to push us to think through how today's culture promotes false worldviews and to sharpen our skill in asking questions. For further prayerful thought, number one, why should fathers, grandfathers, and church leaders be concerned about the false worldviews taking the rising generation captive? See your show notes for additional questions. Next week, we continue our series entitled Protecting Our Families from Enticing but False Worldviews. We address a foundational worldview of Western culture that science makes religion obsolete. It is argued that the events in nature that mankind couldn't understand required the invention of a deity to explain them. But now we have science to explain these phenomena. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast.